Father God, thank you that we can now begin to gather. We look forward to doing that with more of our people uh, next Sunday and in the Sundays to come. Thank you, God, that we can sing your praises. Thank you, God, that Jesus, you are on the throne. You reign supreme. And we take delight and comfort and encouragement in that. We would ask now in this time of teaching that you speak to us through your word. And this we ask as always in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, what a world we live in, right? (laughs) A world significantly paralyzed by the coronavirus. Uh, A world significantly divided by politics, race, education, socioeconomic kinds of divisions. And it makes you wonder, can anything or anyone fix this world that we live in? And we've actually been saying now for quite some time that there is someone who can do that fixing. And that person is who? It's Jesus. That's really part of the message, the central message of the book of Revelation, Jesus. Jesus is going to be a solution to the problems that we face. But until it is fixed, how do I live in a world that is so broken, a world where I'm broken too? Uh, How do I follow Jesus in all of the midst of this brokenness? Well, our passage today actually helps us have an answer to some of those kinds of questions. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 18, continuing our study of this book. Before we do that, I want to give you just some background information that will be helpful to us. This has to do with John's use of the term Babylon, this city, ancient city. Uh, This is real central to understanding this chapter. We looked last week at chapter 17, uh, and the image of the woman, the harlot there, was identified in Revelation 17, 5 as Babylon. And most scholars would say that Babylon is really like a a code word referring to the world or, in other words, any power, any system that opposes God. And this is typical of apocalyptic literature. John uses this kind of thing quite a lot. Uh, This particular code name, Babylon, is actually used elsewhere in the New Testament. Peter uses the term in 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Uh, He says, your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings. And of course, he's not talking about the ancient empire of Babylon, which no longer existed uh, at that time. Of course, he's talking about Rome. The city where tradition tells us both Peter and Paul were martyred. Rome was commonly referred to as Babylon in those days by some first century Christians like Peter and John. And uh, partly because just as Babylon oppressed the people of God in the Old Testament, it was Babylon that took the, the people in and around Jerusalem, Judea into captivity. So too in New Testament times, Rome oppressed the people of God. And so Peter and John knew that when their readers saw the word or heard the term, the code word Babylon, they understood that the reference was actually being made to Rome. And uh, this is important because John is concerned that Rome will lure people or pressure people or intimidate people or persecute people into giving up following Jesus, their Lord and Savior. And so John wants his readers to know what's going to happen to Rome, or by extension, any system or way of life that tries to lure people away from following Jesus. And that includes, of course, our world and the systems in which we live today. And so we read 
in Revelation chapter 18, the first eight verses, these words. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling of demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay back her uh, double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and the luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts. I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. It's a serious warning. We've heard many of them in this book. This is a serious call to Jesus' people to come out of Babylon. It's a sobering statement of the coming judgment if you stay in Babylon. Uh, Long ago, before my mom and my dad passed away, we would visit them back in Indiana. In Indiana, there are lots of little country towns that you can visit. And uh, most of these towns were originally founded many decades earlier because the town produced something supportive of nearby industries, either in Indianapolis or Chicago. This would be uh, making automobile parts or uh, machining steel, that type of thing. But in many of those towns, uh, the business had dried up a long, long time ago. And a lot of these towns now sit mostly empty. Uh, Stores, even on Main Street, boarded up. Huge old buildings you could find, small factories is what they were, just usually off Main Street somewhere that were entirely, completely abandoned. Weeds growing up through parking lots, uh, trees, uh, you know, growing out of or through a window, uh, windows broken out. And I would see things like that, and I would think, boy, this used to be such a thriving community, a productive place, a place where relationships were formed and built and grew and friendships were made and people got married and they built schools and they started families and they started businesses. But Not so much, not anymore. The town is dying or dead, and the families have moved out, most of them, and thriving businesses are few and far between. And it's a little like some of our mining towns here in Colorado. Um, And when I see stuff like that, I I, I just can't help but wondering, you know, what happened here? (laughs) Could a different series of decisions been made that would have prevented this from happening? Could this place still be thriving somehow? Well, in chapter 18, John makes some staggering predictions about Babylon or about Rome. And he says that the same thing is going to happen to Rome. 
In fact, he claims that the Roman Empire is going to fall. Her prosperity, her power, these things are going to come to an end. And you've got to understand just how bold this prediction is. Daniel referred to this last Sunday because, understand, it was inconceivable in John's day that Rome could fall. Because Rome was thriving. Roman ships uh, controlled the seas. Roman roads made travel possible. From Asia to Scotland, Roman roads made travel possible quickly, safely. Roman wealth was the envy of the world. Roman military power was unbeatable. It was unstoppable. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, existed precisely because no one dared contest the might of Rome. And here's John. I mean, he's a prisoner. He's on a remote island, probably watched day and night, maybe in shackles, we don't know. He's a powerless old man, armed only with a vision from God and a pen. And he looks into the future, and he's inspired and moved to write these words, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. He says, Rome is going to be judged. He says the empire is going to fall. The power and the might of Rome are going to be destroyed. And understand, John is not so much concerned about what will happen with Rome, although that's what he's declaring. His concern is that what happens to Rome might just happen to individuals who follow Rome, who cooperate with Rome, who do the things that Rome wants them to do. And you remember in the early chapters of this book, John, and it's actually Jesus addressing, John is inspired to uh, record these words, uh, what Jesus says to the seven churches, remember that? And over and over, Jesus says to them, to the one who endures to the end, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is faithful, to the one who doesn't get derailed or detoured, and then uh, he makes this, these staggering promises to those individuals who, who manage to endure and overcome. He says they will receive a crown of life. He says that they will receive a, a white stone on which is written a name that only God and them happen to know. He says that they will have a place near the throne next to the Son of Man. All these things depict intimacy. Intimacy of connectedness. Intimacy of relationship to Jesus Christ and to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And he says, all of this and more, if you just overcome. And John writes this because he knows that people can have bright futures and shining promise, but get detoured along the way and end up with empty souls and vacant spirits. And it can happen here. It can happen in us. It can happen in our church if we forget our mission, if we forget who we follow, if we forget our purpose if we get lax about following Jesus, if following Jesus becomes just a second or third or fourth or fifth priority in our lives among many others. And honestly, I see this happen all too often. People excited about living for Jesus, getting sidetracked, losing focus, motivation, or being intimidated in some context, perhaps at school or at work, and they no longer wish to stand boldly and follow Jesus. Their passions change, and before you know it, following Jesus is just a, a small little compartment of their very busy lives, not their central or overarching concern. And we got to ask, well, how does that happen? 
And John, in our text, makes it clear that one way that happens is Rome makes all kinds of promises too. It just doesn't keep any of them. Rome, uh, on its surface, is very alluring. Uh, It's as if it says, hey, I have power to give you what you really want, what you really desire, what will really make you happy. And this, of course, is the evil one at work. It's how he's always worked in world systems and in society. He works this way in your life and in mine still today. He says, if you just go down this path that I'm suggesting, and it's always, always, always a path away from God, a path toward ambivalence, not taking Jesus all that seriously. And the promise is, if you will do that, the payoff will be tremendous. Persecutions will stop. You'll find people uh, in, uh, in various areas and walks of life more willing to cooperate with you. You'll experience more joy. You'll feel good. Uh, you'll prosper. You'll be happy. Your life will be better. But honestly, friends, it never is, especially in the end. One of the saddest things I've ever heard, I heard it years ago. Um, you remember a guy named Woody Allen? He's a comic, an actor, a director of movies. Uh, there was a big, big flap over him leaving his then wife uh, to be with her much younger stepdaughter. She was about half of his age. And he was asked about this. It was shocking to many people. And this is what he said. He says, the heart wants what the heart wants. There you have it. That was his rationale. I would say that is the world system. That is Rome. The heart wants what the heart wants. I just want it. Rome says, I can give you what you want. If you're willing to bend the knee to Caesar, not even a lot, just a little, just make some compromises along the way. If you will do that, you can have what you want. And we see this play out right here in Revelation 18. In fact, John mentions several groups of people who are frankly led down this very path by Babylon, by Rome. Uh, He writes this, he says, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her, terrified at her torment. They will stand far off and cry, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. These are, of course, people of power, the kings of the earth. Power is what made their lives work. Power was the key to their happiness. It was the key to their comfort, the key to their future. They got their power by cooperating with Rome because Rome was the ultimate source of power, or so it seemed. And their lives were built on cooperating and compromising along the way, often in just little ways, with Rome. And it looked like a winning strategy. It looked like this was was the way to do life. But it turns out it was not. Because literally in an instant, one hour we read, in one hour it all changed. It was all gone. And John said it would be so, and it was so. And there's a a real poignant little phrase in the verses we read, verse 10. It says that the kings, when they saw Rome's destruction, it says they weep and they mourn, terrified at her torment, and they stand far off, it says. Some versions, they stand at a distance. They make no attempt to come to Rome's aid. 
The relationship was, was pretty surface, if you want to be honest about it. Uh, because they, they now realize, although it's too late, they realize that Rome's path, this cooperation with Rome, is not going to pay off like they had been promised. It's not going to continue. It's not really a good thing any longer. In fact, what's going to happen to them now is they will be left with nothing. None of the promises that were made to them will be fulfilled. Their compromises, their cutting corners, their compliance, their collusion with Rome leaves them exposed now themselves to the judgment of God. It leaves them vulnerable with nothing that was promised to them by this partner called Rome. Now, John mentions some other groups of people, too. He mentions some merchants. He mentions some sea captains and some sailors. Both of these groups make their living by trading with Rome. Verses 11 through 13, we read that the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, and precious stones, and pearls, and fine linen, purple, and silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory and costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep and horses and carriages. You see, these people are people who wanted wealth. Wealth was what was going to secure their future. That's what they were told. That's what they were promised. Rome would give them wealth and their happiness, their security, their well-being depended on doing business with Rome. And that meant doing business the way Rome wanted to do business. And so they would do whatever they needed to ensure that Rome kept buying their products. All of these products, precious stones, pearls, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And then John mentions one more product that the merchants were selling or were willing to sell because Rome wanted this product. And that was human beings being sold as slaves. It's the very last little phrase there of verse 13. And historians have made the observation that Rome was actually an empire built on the back of this institution of slavery. We know uh, that a very large portion of Rome's population were slaves. We know that slaves were, they did all kinds of things. Uh, They were household servants. They were laborers. Some were teachers. Some managed estates. Some were architects. But we know, too, that slaves were used at parties for guests to wipe their soiled hands on the hair of those slaves. Again and again, they were put in positions, demeaning positions, like you would expect slaves to be put. Slaves were kept for entertainment, especially unusual ones. We know for a fact that dwarves, the extremely obese, a human being with any kind of physical deformity was oftentimes prized because they could be put on display. They were a form of entertainment. My point is just that human beings, friends, made in the image of God are not meant to be slaves. But they were in Rome. They were used and they were abused. And the point is, the merchants would sell Rome anything it wanted for a profit. Because that was their security. That was their comfort. They believed that was their future. And in John's day, the world had never seen an economy like this before. I mean, the wealth, the splendor, the beauty. But you could add the avarice, the greed, the human degradation, all of it available 
and on display in Rome, all of it making merchants rich, but again, all of it in an instant, one hour, it's gone. In verse 15, it says, The merchants too who sold these things and gained their wealth from her, from her stand far off, terrified at her torment, and they will weep and they will mourn. Everything they'd built their life on, you see, everything that they had counted on to secure their future, everything that they had compromised for just a little and then just a little more and then just a little more after that, all of that in an instant, in an hour, it's gone. And here's the deal. Everything that leads a person away from God is like that. It's temporary. Rome can promise you things and in some cases deliver, but it'll be temporary power and temporary wealth and temporary glory and temporary security, temporary conference, temporary happiness, temporary joy. John says the merchants, the sea captains, the sailors all observe while weeping and mourning in one hour Rome has been brought to ruin. And they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Now, we live in a different place, in a different era. We don't have kings among us, not formally, not officially. We don't have slave trading merchants, thank God. We don't have sea captains and sailors, at least not here in Denver. Uh, But we do have the same temptations and the same allurements. You bet we do. Uh, We have seen in our study of this book that we are all of us involved in a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Just like the seven churches that we studied back there in chapters 2 and 3. And if we mean to go deeper in our devotion to Jesus and get more effective in our reaching out to others who don't know him but who need to know him. You know, people who are depressed or discouraged or fearful or lonely, perhaps because of the coronavirus. Or people who are angry and frustrated by the death of George Floyd, the cruelty of racial inequality and injustice. I mean, these are all people, right, who need to know Jesus. I mean, that's where wisdom, that's where truth comes from. And if we are going to keep preaching Jesus to a world that needs to know Jesus, if we're going to keep talking about his truth, if we are going to keep starting new churches that become outposts that keep proclaiming that message, do you think our spiritual battles, our temptations, our allurements, our trials, and our enemies are going to be any less than those of the churches in the first century? I don't think so. Not really. I think the evil one is always trying to take you and me, this church and any church like it, out of the battle. He wants to put us on the sidelines. He wants to get us doing things that are just a little off course. And then just a little more off course. And then just a little more off course. Now, he will sidetrack us. There's so many different kinds of allurements and temptations Um, Getting our eyes on us, right, instead of on Jesus. Getting us to be all about our rights. I want my rights, or I'm angry about this or that, or getting me to focus on my sin or my failures or my enemies. Getting us to forget Jesus' saving work on our behalf and on behalf of other people. We studied a few weeks ago how Satan is our constant accuser. Never stops. So ironic. 
I mean, he tempts us to sin, right? That's part and parcel of what he does. Saying things to us like, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's just a little lie. It's just a little cheating. It's just a little small compromise. It's just a little bowing down to Caesar. It's not really a big deal. And then when we give in, when we sin, boy, he accuses us and tries to rack us with enough guilt and shame and anger and humiliation that we run from Jesus instead of to him. And the temptations that the evil one uses in our lives, boy, myriad, right? Sexual misconduct, financial wrongdoing, cutting corners with the truth, compromises in our commitment, spiritual ambivalence, shifting of priorities. What should be number one is now number five, right? Complacency in the face of injustice, always something public or something private, anything to separate us just a little from Jesus, because then it will be just a little more separation from Jesus. And then he condemns us and he accuses us. And friends, whatever your temptations are, whatever part of Rome tempts you, if you follow Rome, if you go the way of worldly compromises and hollow promises, then guaranteed, guaranteed the day will come when you stand at a distance like the kings and the merchants, the sea captains and sailors, watching those things be destroyed that you were building your life upon and you will be left like them with nothing, absolutely nothing. You will have built your house on sand. And I'll tell you, Jesus through John is so concerned for his people, the church, He does not want us to go down that path, to be lured, to be tempted, to be persecuted in that direction. And this is kind of the pastoral heart of the text that we're looking at this morning. Jesus warns his readers in this way. He says to them and to us, come out of her, my people. Come out of her so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. And when Jesus says, come out of her, he's not talking about a a geographic relocation. He's talking about spiritually. Uh, He's saying, don't live the way Rome lives. He's saying, don't give your heart to the things that Rome gives its heart to. Don't trust in worldly systems. Don't be a fool. Follow me, he's saying, and practice living with wisdom. And of course, the question is, how? What, what, is, what does that look like? You know, how do I do that while I'm living in Rome? How do I do that while I myself am fallen and broken? Fair question. And the short answer that I like to give to this is one that kind of really challenges me. It comes from Jesus' brother, James, who watched Jesus do this. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Man, there you have it. For years and years, James had watched his brother Jesus drawing near to God, and James was pretty convinced that what gave Jesus the fortitude, the wherewithal to stand against temptations, stand against persecutions, stand against evil and untruth was the fact that Jesus just kept drawing near to the Father. Now, to put a little meat on the bones of what that might mean, I would suggest that one of the things it means, it probably means many things, but one of them, 
It means drawing near to God by practicing this thing of self-examination. You see, if we're going to live in Rome, but don't want to be like Rome, well, that takes something called wisdom. And the Bible counsels us very clearly that the fear of the Lord, that's, that's faith in God, trust in God, reverence for God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, you know, knowing God and knowing Him better, knowing His Word and knowing it better, understanding His will and understanding it more and more clearly, uh, and trusting in God, all of this comes uh, in part by examining ourselves in light of Jesus, His teachings, His Word, His will. Am I pleasing Him? Am I really obeying Him? making that a regular practice in my life. It's why we do a confession of sin in a worship service. It's, it's just to get us thinking, am I doing what he wants me to do? Am I obeying him? It's, it's learning to pray like David prayed, search me, God, and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in doing your will. You know, in times such as they are at present, I would call these very divided times. Man, opinions are strong. Emotions are high. And we too often speak and act without wisdom. We condemn people with different opinions. We say and do things that do not reflect the love or the grace or the wisdom or the patience of Jesus. And this is why I think wisdom living starts with self-examination. It's kind of where it has to start. Jesus said to his listeners one time, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank, you know, in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. I hate what he says there. <laughs> it's convicting. To me, you know, I've heard uh, Christian maskers. Do you know who that is? Those are people who think we should be wearing masks. I've heard Christian maskers condemning no maskers. Those are people who think that we should, you know, not be wearing masks and think that wearing masks is stupid, and vice versa. I've heard I've heard no maskers condemning maskers. This is foolishness, friends. Regardless whether you're a masker or a no masker. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. And I, I hope that you'll see, because I've done this, I'm doing this, I hope that you'll see that Jesus is giving you a chance to practice living wisely, which isn't about masks or no masks. Living wisely will always look like the fruit of the Spirit, not condemning or judging. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, and peace. And I hate this next one, patience, forbearance. Oh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That's what I'm really trying to work on. Self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You know, we're all watching the protests that have taken place in cities uh, across our nation, protests, uh, that in many cases have turned into riots and into looting. 
Uh, some of us are protesters. We want racial justice. We want change. We want racial equality. And we understand the anger and the frustration. And we sympathize with what's going on. Others of us are law and order people. And we think there already is racial equality on the books. And it needs to be practiced yeah, before the law. It needs to be put into practice. And our concern is that the protests seem to be more a pretense to loot and to riot. Now, I realize those are both... Uh, oversimplifications, right, of those positions. I, I know that, but that's not my point. My point is, regardless what group you're in, if you follow Jesus before you do anything, certainly before you judge, examine yourself. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Again, pray like David. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting, your way, your will, obeying you, your law. You see, if you have to live in Rome and don't want to be like Rome... Ask God to reveal any misguided attitudes or prejudice or racism or judgmental spirit. God, is there any wrong thinking going on in me? Thinking that reveals a lack of trust, a lack of faith, a lack of patience. Pointing out anything in me, God, that offends you, that is driven by selfishness or bigotry or my rights versus your rights, or maybe even my love of country more than love of your kingdom. This is about both the interior and the exterior of our lives, our thoughts and our behavior. Lord, are my priorities what you want them to be? Am I loving people around me, even people I disagree with? How am I relating to my neighbors, my friends, my coworkers, my family, my enemies? Are the fruits of the Spirit evident in my life? My point is just that practicing self-examination, believe me, I hate it. I don't like what it reveals in me. I find myself having to repent and having to ask for his help. But when I practice self-examination regarding my heart, my mind, my behavior, and doing that before God, it helps me live in Rome and not live like Rome. Something else that I think helps, this might surprise you, uh, but it's practicing the, the art, if you will, of living joyfully. Um, I think Rome starts to look good when your life starts to look bad. I think the Apostle John was not tempted to compromise with Rome. You think, you think anybody wanted him to compromise with Rome? Hey, you want to get off this island? Hey, you want to get out of lockdown? Hey, you want to be free and you're in your old age? You want to go be with the people you love? All you got to do is this. Bow down just a little, just a little to Caesar. I don't think John was very tempted because he was part of a better community. A loving, caring, forgiving, humble, and even joyful community called the church. And I'll tell you, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I appreciate Nehemiah in Nehemiah 8.10. He says to people who've been listening to the law of God being read, and they're very convicted about their sins. They really are. And Nehemiah says, and they were weeping, they were crying. Nehemiah says, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
To me, it's a little bit of what we're doing here. My heart is overjoyed that we have this prospect coming up of gathering together again. And some of us are here this morning practicing that. And the point is, Nehemiah is calling us to move into God's joy and embrace his truth. Part of his truth is grace and mercy, remembering who we are in him. And doing that, you see, gives us something to celebrate no matter what we face, no matter what we're going through. Think for a moment about the relationship between joy and strength in your life. I get Nehemiah's point. You know, when you have a joy-filled marriage, it's a strong marriage. That's how it works. It's easy to resist sexual temptation because of the joy that you have in your own marriage. It's easy to overcome trials when there's joy with you and your spouse working together to overcome uh, those trials. If you have a joy-filled marriage, you have a strong marriage. When you have joy from serving others, using your spiritual abilities or gifts, and you see change and good spiritual things happening, there's not a lot of temptation when that's happening in your life to walk away from God or to quit the community of God or to compromise your faith. The point that I'm making just in general is that there is an inverse correlation between your joy level and your vulnerability to temptation the greater the joy the less likely Rome is to tempt you and so Nehemiah says construct your days so that in them are certain things that produce the joy of the Lord things that cause you to celebrate what he is who he is what he's done and that's one reason I think our not gathering for worship has been so disruptive to so many of us spiritually it has to me I long to meet with others to worship Jesus. It's just not that great in my family room, in my pajamas, by myself. Ordinarily, for many of us, we set aside a day every week to gather with others to worship God. And this helps reinforce wisdom living, right? Obedience to God doing and knowing his will. In worship, we make declarations of faith. We sing songs of praise. We study truth. We confess sin. We remember who Jesus is, his love, his mercy, his grace, his life, his death, his forgiveness. This is what worship is. It's reaching up to God. And these things help to produce joy in my life and I hope in yours. And not being able to do that together, for me, a joy killer. It really has been. So good news, as we've already alluded to, June the 14th is coming and we are going to be starting up our formally and officially our gatherings here in this room. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Yeah, amen. And it's a little weird. We're spread out. There aren't that many of us. It's like planting a church all over and I love that. Um, But you're going to get the details this week of what that's going to look like. So, you know, heads up. You'll hear from us about the details. But let me just say again, you need to develop a joyful life if you want to live in Rome and not live like Rome. One more thing I just want to mention quickly before we close here. You need to develop a long-term view of life. You know, people in finances will tell you, if you're just living in the moment and you're not laying aside for the future, you're going to be in trouble. Well, this is kind of what John is doing here. A really biblical world life view is both in the now, but it's also looking to the future. Uh, This is what John conveys to his readers. John keeps saying, look where Rome is headed. Look where they're going. Look where all of that is going to lead. And any world system, including even our own North American world system, with its excessive individualism, me, 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 right? 
with its excessive pursuit of personal happiness and its excessive focus on personal satisfaction and its excessive desire for creature comforts and its excessive consumerism. Any world system that is not founded on loving God and loving your neighbor and serving others, in other words, on reaching up in and out, is leading you down a path to sure and certain disappointment and even destruction. And that's John's warning. We're not going to read it right now, but in verses 21 to 23, John says, hey, the day is coming when all of Rome's music, all of its joy, all of its songs, all of its productivity, the entire community will just tragically end. It'll be over. So don't, whatever you do, live like Rome. Don't throw in with Rome. Don't give in to Rome's way of life, Rome's values, Rome's priorities, Rome's allegiances, the gods of Rome. Don't worship what Rome worships, power, wealth, luxury, comfort. It looks good at first, but in the end, you will be left with nothing. That's what John is saying. Rome, friends, is always a long-term sure loser because it opposes Jesus' kingdom, and it opposes his glory. It opposes his power, and it opposes his people. Our calling, friends, is to be in Rome, but not be like Rome. And I hope and I pray that in these trying and difficult times, challenging times, we will be a people who, who honor Jesus and who live wisely, who live in Rome, but not like Rome. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this time to study together, to be together. Would you help us navigate the times in which we live in ways where we look different than the world? We look different than Rome. We manifest the fruits of the Holy Spirit in ways and in degrees that cause people to want to know more about Jesus. Would you grant us that grace? We pray in his name. Amen.